0: Still looking at this sequence of scriptures here, uh, Hebrews 10, verse 19 through 25, where the Hebrew writer tells those Hebrew people uh, of their Christian privilege. He makes a declaration of the privileges that they have in Christ that they could not have under the law because it was a shadow of better things to come and these are the better things. And so in showing the superiority of Christ and his sacrifice, he goes into those privileges and then he gives them a warning in verse 25. And that's where we ended our study last week. We pretty much plowed through and covered an explanation about verse 25. But listen to it again, because it can be a little confusing the way it was written. It's easy to jump to a conclusion that's not there. The writer said, If we deliberately, no, that ain't it. Verse 25. He tells these Hebrews not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. So some of these Jews have done pulled away from Christ and were not assembling themselves. This is talking about Sunday morning. He starts out talking about Sunday morning, but the last of this verse, the, the day approaching, is not Sunday. It's the destruction of Jerusalem. And so make that distinction in your mind. The day there that's mentioned is not the Lord's day. He says, uh, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching. What day was approaching the Jews? Remember the destruction of Jerusalem and Jesus had told those Jews in his ministry about in Matthew it's recorded in Matthew 24 Mark 13 Luke 17 and Luke 20 Jesus warned them Jews of the hostility of the wrath of God that was coming upon them because of their blatant rebellion and so he brought them Roman army down on him. Titus, a Roman general, he came in the form of God and stomped the guts out of him. And like Jesus said, that hatred was so bad that there wouldn't be one stone left upon another that wouldn't be torn down. All right, well, we looked at all of that last week. And so, again, let me remind you as we look at verse 25 and finish out this morning on that verse that the day is is uh, uh, the day approaching is not the Lord's day at all it has to do with the Jews he's writing to Jews that, so you remember we've said many times in this study of Hebrews you've got to put on your Hebrew shoes because he's not writing to you, you're a Gentile there's many things to learn in here, that's true but you to understand the depths and the profoundness of what he's speaking, and particularly here, you've got to put on the Jewish mind because uh, it's easy for them to go back into Judaism, uh, even after obeying Christ. <laughs> on the day of Pentecost, there was 3,000 Jews. On the birthday of the church, when the first gospel sermon was preached by the apostles, 3,000 Jews <laughs> obeyed the gospel. But did they understand everything? No, they didn't. All they understood was Peter's conclusion in verse 36. He finished his five-minute sermon with this statement. After he proved it through prophecy and everything else, through the Holy Spirit message and through eyewitness testimony and primarily prophecy. And to the Jew, boy, that was heavy-weight it, carried, it went a long way with the Jew. 3,000 of them were cut to the heart and said, Men and brethren, what should we do when they realized they killed their Messiah? Because that's what Peter said. He said in verse 36, Now let all the house of Israel, were, those are the Jews. And on that particular day, verse 5 says that they were devout Jews from every nation under heaven. So you can conclude that God running the show knew exactly what day to choose, didn't he? It was a Jewish festival, the Passover, an observance. And it was Jews from every nation under heaven. How best to start the gospel in that way? And Jesus also commissioned the apostles to also go into all the world and preach the gospel. to Every creature, they did... He didn't ask the impossible of them. But he said, go into all the world, not some of the world, all of the world, and preach the gospel not to some or who will listen, but to every creature. And Paul, as he finished out his letter in Colossians uh, 1, verse 26 and 29, he said, as he wrote that letter in 62 A.D., By that time, he said, the gospel had been preached to every creature under heaven. Did God bless the world with the good news of a Messiah? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Those Jews had that good news. But did they understand it? No, because by the time you get to Acts 15, you find out uh, that they were trying to add uh, the law of Moses, to them Gentile Christians. They followed behind Paul as he established churches up in Asia Minor. And, and they said, listen, we're, clean, we're kind of cleaning up behind Paul because he his mission is to preach the gospel and he failed to tell you or he didn't have time to tell you on his mission that you've got to be circumcised and observe the law of Moses. <coughs> See, they welcomely accepted Christ as a sacrifice, but they didn't understand that the law of Moses was finished, finalized, and over because as Galatians 3 says the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ once it did that Paul said we have no more need of a schoolmaster we're not under law are we too many passages to quote but Romans 8 verse 2 would be one verse 1 said there's no condemnation in Christ why verse 2 For the law of life that's administered by the Spirit set me free from a law that said if I sin, I die. I'm under grace, not law. Anyway, so Paul, the Hebrew writer here, is trying to warn those Hebrews. Don't go back to that old system. It's finalized. It's finished. It done its work in bringing us to Christ because all of it was merely a shadow. He's already told them in verse chapter 8 that it wasn't possible the blood of bulls and goats should ever take away sin. But God commanded them to take bowls of uh, blood of bulls and goats. But it was only in prospect of a shadow looking forward to the blood of Christ who would take away sin. And so God was forgiving sins in the Old Testament uh, under the promissory note of the cross of Christ well he's warning these Hebrew people to take warning they better listen up because God has put up with them Jews as far as you're going to go in 721 BC he called Salmones or Sargon uh, from Assyria you can read about it in Isaiah uh, 10 verse 5 God hollered up there he called Assyria Ho Assyria the rod of my anger, in whose hand is a staff, a killing staff of my indignation. Come on down and, and destroy and trample them down like the mire in the street. You know who he's talking about? Read the context. It's about those ten tribes called Israel. God had enough of them. You want to read how bad they were? Read 2 second, uh, second Kings 17. And it'll sit in the whole chapter telling you how ugly them people were toward God. They was always in rebellion. Stephen told them that in Acts 7. He said in verse 51, ye do always resist the Spirit of God. As your fathers did, so do ye. And then he defied them. He said, Just show me one of the prophets that God sent to you that you didn't. You killed every one of them. And now he sent his own son and you just crucified him. And that just before they picked up rocks and killed Stephen. And so the runners tried to warn him. God's been patient with the last tribe left, Judah. Simply because he wanted to prove the fidelity of his covenant. In Genesis, in the very beginning, Genesis 49.10. Old Jacob leaned upon his staff as a prophet of God and he told those twelve boys their future by the design and purpose of God. And to Judah he said in verse 10 that the ruler's staff will not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. Shiloh is the Christ, the giver of rest and peace because that's what the word means in the Hebrew. (coughs) So God showed his faithfulness to that covenant. He tolerated them people, because in 2 Kings 17, you read that after God had destroyed the Jews in 21, and carried them off into Assyrian oblivion, it says in 2 Kings 17 that the Jew, the, the last tribe left, Judah, was even worse than Israel. How come God didn't destroy him? because he swore with an oath that the ruler's staff would not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. But what happens when Shiloh comes? He warns them in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21 uh, of the destruction of Jerusalem. Did they listen to him? No, they didn't. And so in A.D. 70, they answered to the Roman general by the name of Titus as the hatred of the Romans came upon those Jews and Like Jesus said in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, there won't be one stone left upon another of the city of Jerusalem and of its temple. The Romans' hatred was so bad for them Jews, they just leveled the whole thing. That was God's wrath on the Jews. They wouldn't listen. Jesus said about the Jews, having eyes to see, they refuse to see, having ears to hear, they refuse to hear lest I should heal them. That's why they're crucified. And so the writer's trying to uh, bring them back to reality and and speak to these ones that have accepted Christ, been baptized into Christ. And he's telling them, don't even think for a minute, of going back to an old system that has no value at all now. It served its purpose. It brought us to Christ. And after that, we have no more need of that schoolmaster called the law. And so here in verse 25, he's telling, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That's on Sunday morning. In worship. As the manner of some is. Because some of them had already done that. They quit going. But exhort one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. What's that second day? The destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, I think that sets the context for us to finish out our study on verse 25, particularly. In view of those visible evidences of all of the privileges that they have in Christ now, they have the privilege of having a clear conscience because they have come to recognize Christ's blood was for atonement, for at to bring man into the presence of God through that veil that they couldn't enter only the high priest could once a year in behalf of the people and before he could do that he even had to offer a sacrifice for their own sins, the sins of the high priest and of course the superiority of Christ's sacrifice is that he had no sin to offer, he had nothing to offer for his sin because he didn't have any and rather than a lamb, he was the lamb of God, he was a sacrifice So he was the priest that offered himself as a sacrifice superior to the old Levitical system. And so they were to admonish one another so much as they see the day of A.D. 70 coming. So in view of those visible evidences of what they have in Christ, the disciples could easily see the day approaching, the evidences that Jesus had given them about that day. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. Little wonder he encouraged his readers to hold tenaciously to their faith in Christ and not revert to Judaism, because that's what a lot of them were doing. For when the Romans had finished with Jerusalem, there will According to Jesus, not be stone left upon stone in the entire city. The temple will be torn down completely. The priests will be ex- exported to Rome, or they'll be killed in the siege of Jerusalem. And incidentally, if you are a reader and you like to read, you can go to the library or you got the smartphones now, you can call it in. And you can read after uh, Josephus. He was a Walter Cronkite of that day. He was a reporter of the histories of that day, that time. And he, because he was a Jew and a reporter, the Romans allowed him to go into the city of Jerusalem after the Romans had laid siege against it and to come back and report of what he saw. And he saw those Jews in starvation doing exactly what God said they would in prophecy they ate their own children in this false faith that God's trying our faith so let's go ahead and eat our children we've already eaten the rats and everything in the city that's eatable now let's eat our children because God's testing us to see if we really believe in him and he can raise the dead false hopes. had no basis at all. Anyway, so, uh, and so the writers tell them there will be no more sacrifice offered in Jerusalem or elsewhere by Jews. It has no bearing anymore because it's all going to be destroyed. The Romans are going to make sure they ain't one stone left upon another. They don't want this thing to ever come back alive again. They've had enough of the insolence of the Jews. The Jews were high-minded because God said that He had chosen them for a purpose. They didn't understand the purpose. They didn't know there was a shadow of better things to come. And they was to look and uh, uh, they was to look into those prophecies and see God's fulfillment of His eternal purpose in the church, in Christ, and in his sacrifice. They didn't see him. And so there'll be no more sacrifice offered in Jerusalem or elsewhere by the Jews because of the Roman destruction. So those uh, being tempted to return to the Hebrew religion will have nothing to return to after A.D. 70. It won't be none. Even if the Romans had not devastated the city, none of those sacrifices that they offered would have any validity before God anyway. In verse 37, the author stated uh, that Habakkuk's prophecy was to be fulfilled in just a very little while. It is therefore evident that his readers were living under the very shadow of the total destruction of Jerusalem, and the religious system that was centered there in Jerusalem. Again, to comfort this fourth view that we discussed, that this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, the writer proceeds <coughs> to warn those who ignore his exhortation to re, uh, 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 not to return to Judaism. For them, no sacrifice for sin is left, that's Hebrews 10.26. No more sacrifices left for them if they leave Christ. He's the only sacrifice. That's why Jesus can say uh, What is it? Matthew 16.33? Uh, no, it's not 33. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 6.24. John. 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 I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He's the only sacrifice for sin. So even if they did offer sacrifices of animals, had no validity anymore. It was that which portrayed or spoke of or foreshadowed the blood of Christ that would take away sin. So in other words, they would not be returning to a religious system that had any valid sacrifice for atonement. And then the writer, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, applied the prophecy of Habakkuk 2, verse 1 through 4, to their then present situation. You remember Habakkuk? He had one message. God's total judgment of this world. When Christ came, God totally judged this world. He laid the plumb line. You're either in or out. You're either on or off you're either saved or lost and it's all based on your obedience to Christ or your disobedience there is no other way the people or the prophet Habakkuk said and I I quote I will stand my watch now see Habakkuk in the first chapter verse 1 said Lord I see all this injustice and all this where are you in this? How come I don't see you judging them? We wonder that ourselves, don't we? We see government set up in our time, uh, and we wonder wonder why God doesn't step in. So we can associate with Habakkuk and his anxiety and frustration over what he sees and wondering how come God doesn't destroy him. So here he says, I'll stand my watch because God's promised to do this. I will look to see what God will say to me. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that he who reads it may run. For the revelation awaits the appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not uh, uh, delay. And so the appointed time spoken of in Hebrews 10, would inevitably come even if it lingered long after Habakkuk's time when he said that. And the prophecy speaks of the end. End of who? End of what? The Judaism system and the tribe of Judah. God's wrath was poured out upon the ten tribes in 721 B.C. by Sargon, Shalmaneser, uh, and Sennacherib from Assyria as God called them over to do just what he wanted done to them. And now God has warned them and warned them and warned them. He sent his son to warn them. It's recorded in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. They didn't listen. They didn't listen. They had no faith in God. They had faith in a system that was deleted, that had finished its course and brought us to Christ. Alright, so the prophecy of Habakkuk speaks of the end of the Jew. Quite evidently in the city of Jerusalem. It's clear from Hebrews 10 37 through 39 that the writer considers the prophecy of Habakkuk as applying to to his specific generation of readers. In verse 39, he warned those who shrink back into Judaism will be destroyed. He warned them again. Then once again in Hebrews 12, verse 26 and 27, the writer applies the graphic prophecy of Habakkuk 2, verse 6 and 7, to his generation that stood under the minutes of the Roman onslaught against Jerusalem. And <coughs> Habakkuk told, God told Habakkuk in the second chapter, give this warning on a sign that even a man running as hard as he can without a breath and everything can read this sign. And when Jesus came, Jesus was that sign to him. He read in that sign when you see Jerusalem compassed with armies, know that the destruction of Jerusalem is here. And they didn't pay attention to it. Because we're God's people. Why? He ain't going to let something like that happen to us. And it did. It, it's history now. History is that time space dimension we call history. It's undeniable. It's recorded in history. Oh, All right, so. Uh, so Haggai spoke in the days after the restoration of Jerusalem and, and the rebuilding of the temple that was destroyed by the Babylonian army in the days of the exile of Judah. The Jews had returned to Jerusalem, had constructed a temple from the rubble gathered from the devastation done by the Babylonians 70 years before Haggai prophesied uh, that heaven and earth uh, excuse me, Haggai prophesied that just as the former temple had been destroyed so God said in a little while I will come uh, once more and I'll shake heaven and earth. What does shaking heaven and earth mean? Judgment. It's judgment language. For the Hebrew writer that promise shaking that was coming was about to take place in the final revelation of the Jewish temple and in 1227 of this Hebrew letter, the author interprets the words once more indicating the removal of what can be shaken, that it, uh, that is created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain, verse 27 of the 12th chapter. The shaken things are Jerusalem, the temple and the whole religious structure of Judaism. The thing that cannot be shaken, and he speaks of, is the eternal kingdom that God, uh, that cannot be shaken. Verse 28. You remember Paul said, Wherefore, we, as he spoke to the Hebrews, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, cannot be shaken, Let us have grace whereby we may serve God with reverence and godly fear, for our God is nobody to mess with. He's a consuming fire. So that is the unshakable kingdom of Christ. It can't be shaken. But the Jewish system was to be shaken according to Habakkuk 2, 1-6. if you got something to drink we'll drink it Uh. (laughs) just kidding ever since that accident I'm losing my voice on occasion So from these obvious applications of the Hebrew writer, it's clear that the day approaching in verse 25, related to the destruction of Jerusalem, he simply warns his readers to stay with Christ, for his new world order is the only one that will survive the Roman desolation, because everything that can be shaken will, like Jerusalem. The physical things, but the spiritual things cannot be shaken. And so, we receiving a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. He tells the Hebrew, Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably, with reverence and godly fear. For our God's nobody to mess with. He's a consuming fire. He's proved that in the Old Testament, hadn't he? In Romans 11 22, Paul said, Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity but under thee goodness provided you continue in his goodness otherwise thou also shall be cut off that's a severe warning isn't it you read the Old Testament so stay with Christ And stay faithful to your Christian privileges that he's already presented of being able to come into the presence of God simply because of Christ's sacrifice, not because of your goodness, not because you're so pretty. not because of anything you've done, because of what he's done. It's his work that delivered us, not ours. We have nothing to boast in but Christ. That's Ephesians 2 8 through 10. For by grace are you saved through your faith, not your works, your faith. Well, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not anything that you've done, it's a free gift. A gift is something that has no cost to it at all. God just wanted to save you. He came to this orphanage and adopted you. He wants to adopt everybody. Scripture says he's not willing that any man should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But they're not going to. Because the Lord said the way to hell is a wide gate. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be enter therein. Now I know that brings tears to God's eyes if it were, but He made man a free moral agency and he gives you the dignity to make your choice where you want to spend eternity either with God or the devil. (laughs) Anyway so stay with Christ and stay faithful to your Christian privilege of drawing near to God through the collective assemblies of the church on the Lord's day. This is the exhortation he wishes to impart in Hebrews 10.25 don't forsake in assembling yourselves together on the Lord's day. But when you do, important <coughs> one another in view of this special day called the destruction of Jerusalem. That Jesus warned them about. Oh, and I think we've wore that out pretty good. Going back over several times. <laughs> That's my custom. I don't know why. Mind you, again, I was a welder for 60 years. I'm doing my best up here. Kind of work with me a little bit. (laughs) And incidentally, I didn't graduate from high school either. So, work with me. (laughs) So, in the previous lesson that we just finished in... Uh, chapter 10 verse 19 to 25 we've seen the declaration of the Christian privilege they have the privilege of having a clear conscience of coming into the very presence of God and calling him father simply because of what Jesus done because again I started a minute ago and I, I lost track of where I was going Ephesians 2 8 through 10 for the grace of you saved through your faith that and that not of yourselves it's a gift of God not of your works, lest any man should boast. Look what I done. Look what I'm doing. Your works have nothing to do with your salvation. Your salvation produces your works. Because the writer says, For we are Christians, he's writing to Christians, for we are his workmanship. You see what this says? He done the work. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Now, we have good works to do, but they don't save us. They're the result of taking in the Spirit of God. You cannot breathe in the Spirit of God. Well, that ain't the way you get it. You get it through the Word, but you do you know what I mean. You can't absorb the Spirit of God and not be gracious toward His creation and His creation your brothers and sisters in the world, regardless of their nationality, regardless of anything about them, they can be the vilest sinners and you too can bleed for their destruction. You can wish to God that they repent. He does. If you have his spirit, you're like him, aren't you? Ain't little boys and girls like their father and their mother? Well, in this case, their father we walk with God, don't we? First John 1, 7. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. They're talking about fellowship with God. And along the way, the blood of his son continually cleanses us from sin. I have nothing to worry about. Neither do these Hebrews. And they need to be reminded of that. The privileges that they have in Christ. Sure, I'm no good. I never was any good. Never will be any good according to world standard. But God likes me. He likes you. He loves us. 1 John 3, verse 7. God is love. And like he told the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9, God will see you through to the day of judgment. Out behind the curtain on the stage of life is God working with all those angels in your behalf. He won't allow you to be tempted above that you're able to bear. He's with you. He said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Never leave us. Do we have help? Yeah. Do I know how he helps? No, but I know he helps. I don't need to know his business. He don't need to lay out his war strategy before a simpleton like me. All he needs to do is tell me, Merle, I'm for you. And I created this whole universe. (laughs) What do you think about that? And like Psalms 19 said, verse 1 through 6, the heavens declare the glory of Almighty God and the firmament shows His handiwork and day and night they preach their message. And there's no inhabitants of the earth that doesn't understand it. If you want to take a backward tribe like maybe over in Africa, the headhunter tribes, as an illustration, they understand from what's created the dignity, the majesty, the glory, the might, the power of Almighty God. Paul, in his presentation of the book of Romans, he just couldn't stand it as he preached to the mercy that comes to mankind. And he stops to make an acclamation of praise to God. It's profound. Romans 11, I think it begins in verse 32, 34, 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways, and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he might be his counselor? Or who is first given to him that it should be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him be all things, to whom be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. And so we're the workmanship of what Christ done in Calvary. No place to boast. Romans 3, verse 27. Where is boasting then, Paul says? It is excluded. By what law? By the law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. So we sing again that song, Standing on the Promises. Fantastic, isn't it? And so... uh, now Paul changes he's been talking about the privileges we have in Christ and now beginning in verse 26 as you see on the board I didn't put it up there I'm sorry we're now ready to go into uh, this lesson uh, 19 through 25 no excuse me 26 through 39 to the end of the chapter here's what Paul will deal with a discussion of the peril, the danger, and the and the reality, the great mistake that would be made if an individual gives up that privilege that he has in Christ. You Hebrews give it up? Oh, man. Look at the peril you're now in if you give it up. The danger. In this section, uh, that the writer will point out how completely unique Jesus is and what danger or peril would be brought upon an individual if he were to leave Christ. Hebrews 10.25 that we just finished with earlier today mentions that some had already gotten in to the custom of forsaking Uh, abandoning and completely separating themselves from the continued assembling of Christians on the Lord's day and it becomes evident that the writer is afraid that if that abandonment of the Christian privilege continues that the individual is going to fall into a condition that is irreparable can you push God too far can you ignore his grace too long read 2 the Thessalonians sometime Paul said to them "That love not the truth when they prove to God that they have no love for the truth God sends them a strong delusion that they might believe a lie to their own damnation you know what's happened to the denominational world they've refused to acknowledge the truth of his word and he sent them strong illusions they still claim to worship the Lord but they don't worship him according to the truth Jesus told the Jews that he said, In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrine, the commandments of men. That's why John gave the warning, 1 John 4 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit. But try the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into this world. The world's full of them, aren't they? And a lot of people have been sent strong delusion. You don't trifle with God, He loves you dearly. And he'll give you grace and mercy and reach every person in this world. His love will reach every person. But don't turn your back on it and walk away. Because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Paul said in Hebrews 12 verse 29, Our God is a consuming fire. The Old Testament testifies to that. Wasn't that the warning as we began Hebrews in the second chapter, verse 1-4? through The writer told them Jews, as he's telling us also in principle. Uh, Therefore, in view of the fact that chapter 1 stated that Jesus is Lord, creator of heaven and earth, and the judge of all men, and the savior of all men, in view of that, therefore we ought to give the mornest heed to the things which we've heard lest at any time we let them slip. And here's why. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression received a just recompense of reward, how should we escape if we neglect so great salvation which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and by them that heard him, the apostles? Verse 4. God also bearing them witness, bearing the Lord and the apostles witness, both with signs and wonders and divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost as God willed it. God was working out his plan. Still is among men. He's already finished the plan but he's still working on humanity to recognize it because that's why Jesus cried out on the cross it's finished. He was looking square into the eyes of the devil From Genesis 3.15, when God declared war with the devil with these words, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and he, the seed of woman, shall come forth and destroy your head. The devil didn't know who that seed of woman was, and he went militantly against God all through history for 4,000 years till the coming of Christ. Little did he know he get his hand kicked. On a cross. He would be destroyed on a cross. And there's Paul's message in 1 Corinthians 1, isn't it? God chose what? The weak and the foolish things of the world to confound the things that are wise and mighty. So let Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Cambridge and the great colleges and the great professors of this world let them waller in their human wisdom. We take our stand in the wisdom of God and He chose the foolish things of this world. He chose what looks weak to man to save them that believe. Because the preaching of the cross, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, to them that perish is foolishness. It's ridiculous. We got friends and relatives who look at it that way, don't we? But what did Paul finish out saying in that verse? but to us who are saved it's the power of God the preaching of the cross the power of God it's the wisdom of God because God chose the foolish things of this world and the weak things to put down the high and the mighty and then I just love him asking the question and I can never bring this up without presenting it 1 Corinthians 1 where is the wise do you know Look under the pew. Do you see him anywhere? Where, you, where are you going to go to get the white man? that understand about life and all that's involved in life. Where is the wise, Paul said? Where's the scribe? Where's the great disputers of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by its wisdom, did not know God, their creator. God chose the foolishness of the thing preached, the gospel, to save him that believe. That is precious. Because Romans 1.20 The invisible things of God are clearly seen being understood for the things that are made. Specifically, His divine Godhead and power so that man is without excuse. Man has no excuse for not believing in God. On the Day of Judgment, there'll be nobody so stupid, even President Biden. He, you know, the man is stupid, but he won't be, nobody will be that stupid to ask God, I didn't know there was a God, because the created things of this universe declares that there was a superhuman, there was a super, super mind that designed it and a superpower that put it together. Now, college, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Cambridge would like you to think that it all happened by accident. We don't live in a chaos. We live in a cosmos. Well organized and everything works and serves together for man's good. In fact, David, in the 28th Psalm, he stood in wonderment of God's creation, and particularly of man. He says, What is man that you're so mindful of? Him? Or the Son of Man that you visit him. You crowned him with glory and honor, and that you set him over all the works of your hand. God gave us a very dignified position. He created this universe to astound us. <coughs> he wanted us to know that He's a God of power. And He's a God of infinite mercy and grace dispelled in the creation it's it's shown in the creation looks like our time's up and it's good because I got lost anyway (laughs) but next week uh We're looking at verse 26 through 39. And you can be reading that for next week because here the writer talks about the peril, the danger and really the great mistake that would be made of an individual giving up the privileges that's solely found in Christ. Thank you for listening to me. Uh, And the visitors, we generally take a few minute break and let other people that didn't make it to the Bible study come and uh, then we have a worship service for an hour. And you're more than welcome. You didn't grab a card huh? <sighs> So we stop somewhere in here. Huh? Uh, how we doing? Okay. Good, Paul.